You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where do you want this killing done? God said, hold on Highway 61. I don't know why I said, are you ready, David? I'm the one hosting this episode. <laughs> I, I, I know. I was like, yeah, yes. Yes, yes I am. <laughs> All right. Well, we're already rolling, so I should just leave this stuff on at the beginning. Hi, and welcome to episode 202 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're back from a week off. Uh, I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today are uh, two two co-hosts from deep in the heart of Trump country, (laughs) from uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. It's Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? Oh, I'm hanging in. My uh, last day of classes for fall semester is tomorrow, so by the time this uh, episode drops, I will have given all of my finals. But that is still, that's still nuts to me. <laughs> uh, it, it's weird to me too, I assure you. And from Houston Baptist College in Houston, Texas, it's David Grubbs. Houston Baptist University. I'm so sorry. That's right. I didn't mean to demote you. They, 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 they get persnickety about that one. They're like, we've got graduate school. <laughs> is that, is that the, see, my understanding is there's no like legal difference between a college and a university. It's all just like what you call things within the school. Okay. Well, we've got multiple schools, and we offer uh, masters and now terminal degrees. When I was at when I was at Tacoma Falls College, there was there was rumblings that they were going to turn it into a university, and we all got a big kick out of it because it was going to be TFU. <laughs> well, our episode today is about Bob Dylan, um, who I think, to the surprise of a lot of people just won the Nobel Prize in Literature. So rather than doing some sort of overview of Dylan's career, which I just, it, it's too big, it's too varied, we're not going to be able to do that. I, I picked one particular album, which is 1965's Highway 61 Revisited. It's Dylan's sixth album. Um, earlier that year, he had moved away from the folk records he had been making, that he had become famous for, that he'd become the, the all-caps voice of a generation because of, and started making rock records. And Highway 61 Revisited is his first really fully rock record. The The album that came out earlier that year is called Bringing It All Back Home. Um, it's about half rock and half acoustic folk. Uh, Highway 61 Revisited is eight songs of rock music with nary a folk influence to be found in them. And then a uh, a single very strange kind of acid folk song at the end. It's, it must be, what, ten minutes long, guys? Yeah, something like 11. that. Yeah. Dylan likes to Dylan likes to end with very long songs. The album after this is Blonde on Blonde, which is a double album, and the I think the last side, side four of the double album, is one song that's like thirteen minutes long, 
And then mm-hmm. um, years and years later, he put out a record called Time Out of Mind, which is a great, like, death-obsessed late career record. And, and it ends with a song that's 16 minutes long. So Dylan likes to, uh, likes to have a very long song at or near the end of his records. Maybe just to test who really loves him. I don't know. <laughs> this album's short enough that instead of instead of going through and like plucking out themes, because I'm not sure it's really the sort of album you can pluck themes out of, we're just going to go through and talk about each song individually, and uh, that means that we may spend a lot more time on some songs than others. If you've heard Highway 61 Revisited, you would probably expect that, because some of these songs have more to say, I think, than other ones do. But let's uh, let's dive right in, Nathan, and talk about the, the opening track, by far the most famous song on the album, Like a Rolling Stone. Time you dress so fine, do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you people call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all I'm kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Well, first of all, as Michael said, this is a song that even if you don't know a lot of Bob Dylan albums, you probably know this as a song. Uh, It's one of those iconic uh, 1960s songs. Uh, As far as the sound of it goes, you know, I mean, it is an eminently sort of sloppy rock and roll track, uh, which is part of what makes it so joyful. If you try to listen for, you know, when the downbeat hits, the drum, the drums and the guitar have entirely different ideas of it. Uh, not, not to mention the organ. <laughs> oh, yeah, the organ, too. I, I, I mustn't forget the organ. Uh, the lyrics of this thing, I mean, you know, you've got these sort of impressionistic scenes of reversal, uh, but it's also, you know, sort of a word salad where, you know, it's kind of nonsense rhymes at the end. So uh, it's, you know, <laughs> as, as far as that goes, I mean, you know, it is sort of its own thing. It definitely sets a tone for an album that is full of nonsense rhymes and impressionistic scenes. Um, as, as far as, you know, immediate reference, I mean, I think if you try too hard to allegorize this thing or to make it uh, point in one direction, the next stanza is going to undercut that effort. So, I mean, uh, you know, there's certainly some places where, you know, you've got some references to the sort of counterculture, you know, living out on the street, roaming the country, things like that. Uh, But then you've got, you know, odd things like, you know, the frowns of the jugglers and the clowns, and you kind of realize that, okay, 
we're not sure why f- clowns are frowning other than that clown and frown rhyme. Well, maybe uh, he's thinking of red skeleton paintings. <laughs> entirely possible. Entirely possible. Uh, <laughs> we yeah, needed so, I mean, an you know. annotated Dylan. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> assure you, you there, there is you an annotated Dylan somewhere. Well, and yeah, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say early in the episode that, you know, if there are uh, Dylan people out there, I'll apologize in advance because uh, I'm sure there are, you know, very esoteric uh, Dylan commentaries that, you know, give precise political reference to every line on this album. Uh, I have not read those commentaries, so I'm just going <laughs> off of what I hear and what I see when I'm looking at the lyrics and listening along. So, um, you know, Michael, I mean, what, what else is there to say about this track other than, you know, it's the one that people know. Well, I, I do have a, a couple things to say. Um, uh-huh. the, the, the track opens with a snare drum that Bruce Springsteen very famously calls somebody kicking open the door to your mind. <laughs> the, the song's more than six minutes long, which I, I, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe is the longest radio uh, single ever to that, to that point in rock history. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it really is a, um, a genre-defying song. Mm-hmm. It, out of all the songs on Highway 61, it is the one I think I have the most. I have my head around the most. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure. Like, like everybody says, it's about Edie Sedgwick, who is a okay. um, who's a kind of Andy Warhol hanger on. She comes from money, and now she's hanging out with all these deadbeats. I believe she had a relationship with Dylan. So uh, the, the song is is very much. However, you want to take some of the more esoteric lines in the song, the the overall thrust of the song is clearly about a a rich woman who has um, joined the counterculture and thus fallen from her pedestal. And the okay. other thing I wanted to point out is that organ played by Al Cooper. The reason the organ is is half a beat off of everything else is because Cooper didn't know what everybody else was playing until they played it. So Dylan famously records everything live. He doesn't he doesn't like to do overdubs. And so mm-hmm. Cooper just uh went over to the organ, watched watched what everybody else was playing and hit the chords after they'd already hit their chords. <laughs> okay. So so that's All right. I mean it it's really like uh, uh the 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 sound of that song to me is that off off kilter organ. It really makes it for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I I really like I really uh, I really like that, David. What do you uh, What do you have to add? Um, yeah. So I I'm a complete Dylan novice. Um, this this is pretty much the first and the only Dylan that I have any kind of familiarity with. Um, anyway, so what I was thinking as I was listening through it, and this is just playing off of what Nathan said and then off of, of what you said, I didn't know about the, the kind of more biographical particular stuff. I, I kept listening to this one thinking about how much medievals would like it. Um, because it's basically about, well, that is a David yeah. Grubbs answer. If I've ever heard one, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's true. But, but, but the song is basically about that kind of Boethian reversal of fortune, mm-hmm. um, which, frankly medieval poetry and then you know even on into you know the renaissance and uh, just got done in shakespeare class teaching through a round of of history plays and the histories are all just obsessed with this idea of reversals of fortune and the people who are on the top are now on the bottom and the people who are on the bottom were on the top and um yeah it 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 captures um 
well, it's it's a stone that's rolling in the song, but you know the medievals would say, "Don't you mean wheel? Don't you mean like a rolling wheel?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I you know I, I I appreciated that kind of uh, the, the 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 development of of that particular theme, and it seemed to connect to a lot of stuff that I've I've been doing in class lately. I think so. the magazine is named after the song. I could be wrong. Not, Maybe the magazine the predates it. Well, all of it is named after the Muddy Waters song, Rolling Stone. I mean, the, mm. the, the band is named after the Muddy Waters song. I think this song may be named after the Muddy Waters song. And then the whoever the magazine took its immediate name from, it's it's going back to Muddy Waters. It's mm-hmm. the synthesis that arises from the contradiction. That's right, yeah. <laughs> In the first issue, this is Wikipedia, so for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first I- here. issue, the editor explained the title of the magazine referred to the Muddy Waters song, the band Rolling Stones, and the Bob Dylan hit like a Rolling Stone. So Everybody's go. right. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> it's everything. <laughs> Well, let's move on. Uh, let's move on to a song that I'm not sure has that much Boethius in it. Although I could be wrong, David. Tombstone <laughs> Blues. The sweet, pretty things on bed now, of course. The city fathers—they're trying to endorse the reincarnation of. Paul Rivier's horse, but the town has no need to be nervous. The ghost of Bell Star, she hands down her wits to Jezebel and Nun. She violently knits a bald wig for Jack the Ripper, who sits at the head of the Chamber of Commerce. Mama's in a factory, she ain't got no shoes. Daddy's in the alley. Looking for food I'm in the kitchen Where the tombstone blues So Boethian No, no, not really um, Well, I, I mean It's it's in the title Blues um, It's very bluesy uh, In in the, the instrumentation And the in, in the feel of it um, But if that, that kind of impressionistic um, images that that Nathan talked about in the first one. This one is entirely composed of it. Um, <laughs> the city fathers—they're trying to endorse the reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse. Like, <laughs> I what? Don't you don't you think that's talking about like back to the past patriotic types? Like instead of moving forward, they're like trying to bring back some imagined idea of the founding fathers. Sure. <laughs> I don't know and what you do the with the ghost of Bell Star. I mean, I, I, I can't take it yeah, that they, far. And then Jezebel, the nun violently knitting a bald wig for Jack the Ripper. I, what? what is, <laughs> well, Jack the Ripper at the head of the chamber of commerce makes some sense. Doesn't it? I, I guess because chambers of commerce <laughs> stalk sex workers. I, what? I, Okay. Anyway. Um, yeah. So at the literal level, this just seems like, uh, 
someone is on drugs, and it would probably help to have some kind of augmented consciousness. And it, it must be said that Dylan was definitely smoking marijuana at this time, and I think he was probably doing acid. I think I've read that. Okay. So, you, I mean, you definitely there. There is definitely a druggy quality to a lot of these lyrics. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, David. I mean, for each of the stanzas, I mean, the opening couple lines, I you know, I'm, I'm always hoping it's like, okay, this one, I think I'm going to get. And then he starts the random rhymes, and it's like, nope. I. <laughs> it's like, okay, the king of the Philistines is soldiers to save. I'm like, okay, okay, biblical reference. Puts jawbones on their tombstones. What? Well, that that's uh, <laughs> that didn't didn't uh, Samson kill a bunch of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey? Yeah, but by that point, the soldiers weren't going to be saved. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. What about the, then, the hysterical you know, the, the bride? I get that. Stanza, one. I mean, is is a fairly, you know open you know vietnam war reference i think which which one? <laughs> oh, puts the pied pipers in prison and fattens the slaves then sends them out to the jungle right right yeah but then you know a line after that gypsy davy shows up with his blowtorch and his slave pedro and i'm like what the? and his collection of stamps <laughs> which will influence his uncle <laughs> Well, it'll win friends and influence his uncle. So I mean, it's a it's a Dale Carnegie joke. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's not a very funny joke, I guess. You, the hysterical yeah. bride verse makes pretty good sense, doesn't it? Uh, the hysterical bride uh, has has had sex for the first time, and she's horrified about it. So the doctor comes in and makes a dirty joke, and then the medicine man comes in and tells her to quit quit her whining, basically. I mean, I don't know what he's doing with it, but that 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 stands at least makes like narrative sense. Yeah. So I guess the larger point that I would want to make, and this is probably something that um, we'll we'll just we'll just extend this to most of these tracks. Um, <laughs> Dylan reminds me of pointillism. Um, sure. In, in in painting. Which, if if you think I'm going to examine this pointillist painting right up close and notice <laughs> all of the tiny details, and then you get up close to the canvas, and the whole thing is just a bunch of dots. All right. Um, my instinct with a text, being an English professor, is to examine it very, very, very closely. But I think maybe I'm doing it wrong, and maybe what I need to do is step further back from the whole thing so that the dots kind of all blur in together. And instead, there's there's a picture there that requires me to not focus on any one thing too much and just see that Bell Star and Jezebel and Jack the Ripper are maybe not specific references to anyone in particular, but instead are references to kind of famous famous criminals. I don't even remember who Bell Star is. Bell Star was a female outlaw. Well, there you go. So that works. Um, you know, so so that I'm I'm just supposed to see that uh, it's 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 kind of ironic because these criminal people are all here and you know they're in the community doing things and it's some kind of general critique. You know, look at all the crooks, look at all the crooks in charge, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, and conservative and not... crooks in general, I think there's there's a lot of people looking backwards in mm. in Tombstone Blues. The guy the guy who, but Brother Bill, 
who 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 Dylan wants to put in a Cecil B. DeMille movie and let him pull the pillars over, and that would be like yeah. the, the highlight of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, bro- brother Bill who gets to be Samson. I mean, at least there's a Delilah reference in the previous stanza. What? Well, yeah. Right? Well, and the 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 Philistine soldiers with the jawbones. Yeah, in the previous. Mm, yeah. And everyone even, remembers even, the uh, tuba players there in the late chapters of Judges. That's true. That's true. Those tuba players. <laughs> that, that's another verse. That last verse that actually kind of makes sense. Because <laughs> you got the the National Bank at a profit selling roadmaps for the soul to the old folks' home in the college, and then then he he wants to uh, cease the pain of your useless and pointless knowledge. You you get this same idea in the first track on bringing it all back home, subterranean homesick blues, where mm-hmm. where, where he says um, thirty years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. So th- th- this mm-hmm. this idea that these these institutions that are supposed to advance us are falling apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a counterculture song if there ever was one, right? I mean, the, the chorus I think makes that clear. Mama's in the kid- factory; she ain't got no shoes. Daddy's mm-hmm. in the alley; he's looking for food. Which I always thought it was he's looking for the fuse, but it's I guess it's he's mm-hmm. looking for food. I'm in the kitchen with the tombstone blues. These are people at the very bottom of society. It's the turn okay. in, uh, was it was it turn on turn in drop out is that the is that's that the Timothy phrase? Leary's yeah yeah and, and Michael uh, Bob dot com does have looking for the fuse oh good. as in as in the powers off it's a it's a it's a much better line I think than looking for food mm-hmm. yeah I'm looking at genius dot com oh okay okay D- D- David to 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 address what you said about pointillism I think. Dylan's not a poet. I'm just going to go ahead and say that, and I, I get annoyed when people treat no. him as if he were a poet. These are Nobel not, prizes otherwise. These these are not lyrics <laughs> meant to be read dispassionately in your mm-hmm. office. You, you know what I mean? These are these are right. lyrics to rock songs that mm-hmm. don't make sense apart from the sound of the the album, or at the very least, it doesn't make sense apart from the performance. So. Um, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're not supposed to examine them as closely as you would examine Gerard Manley Hopkins or whoever. Mm-hmm. Even even somebody mm-hmm. like um, Paul Verlaine, a symbolist poet who I think is a clear influence on on Dylan on this record. These are these are rock songs. I mean, this is a blues song, and it's important that it's a blues song. It's important mm-hmm. that um, this was the first song I really loved on highway 61 because it it feels like it's about to go off the rails i i don't they they keep it up for six minutes and i'm it, it always sounds like they're just about to have to stop um and and we should we should give a uh, we should give special attention to the guitar player on this song and on the whole record mike bloomfield who i, I think just does these amazing like atonal guitar stabs that that suit mm-hmm. the the music and the lyrics perfectly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, it's 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 a fun song. Um, I, I it's just the English the English professor in me keeps getting distracted by the lyrics and wanting them to become something <laughs> that they aren't, um, which means I'm always going to have this kind of nagging dissatisfaction, um, which is not Dylan's fault. <laughs> no, but it, to a large extent, it is Dylan fans' fault. I, I mean, in in presenting him relentlessly as the great American poet, I think they've done him a kind of disservice to people like you at least. Mm -hmm. Because if you were Mm -hmm. expecting Dylan to be 
a good rock lyricist with a surrealist bent, mm-hmm. you would probably you would probably not have to overcome anything to enjoy him. But mm-hmm. when you, when you go in expecting the voice of the generation, I, I mean, one thing we have to talk about is that this this record and bringing it all back home are his rebellion against being the voice of the generation. There aren't direct political mm-hmm. statements as there are on something like the times they are changing. Like, like mm-hmm. he is, he's moving into the surreal, I think, at least in part, because he doesn't want to be your prophet anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the problem is his lyrics are so portentous that he, he kind of accidentally ends up sounding like a prophet for God knows what anyway. <laughs> well, it's like I keep wanting it to become Howl. To become you what? Know? Howl. I uh, keep Alan wanting Ginsburg. it to become, yeah, I keep oh, wanting Howl. it to become Ginsburg. You know, not, I, not I, like 2001 A Space Odyssey. That, that is no. what I heard. No, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Um, no, I keep I keep wanting it to become Ginsburg. I keep wanting it to become that. And it's like almost on the verge of becoming co-ate. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he was he was buddies with Ginsburg. So, so that too make that that too makes sense. But ultimately, I, I really I really don't think that's what he was trying to do. I could be wrong. I mean, and and part of the problem with talking about what Dylan's trying to do is he is a consummate liar. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he 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 takes a great thrill in in lying in interviews, contradicting himself. Who knows what he thinks about anything? Right. right. Which is another great you know American folk singer tradition. Right. Right. Because I I I don't know if you've ever heard any uh, interviews with Woody Guthrie, but I mean, he just makes stuff up. Right. It's wonderful to hear. Can I make another kind of, um, I mean, we've already called him a liar and not the great poet of a generation. Can I say something else insulting? Um, he reminds me of another Bob. Uh, he reminds me of Bob Ross. What? Um, okay. I'm going to go back. To All the right, painting. I'm, I'm willing to hear. I'm willing to I'm hear. Gonna go back to the painting metaphor. <laughs> and then I'm still thinking of Ginsburg. I keep wanting this to be Ginsburg because Ginsburg, it's all in the details. And you can like you can you can kind of sink down into every stanza of how and all the details are there. And it's like this, you know, it's 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 like this incredible landscape painting where if you do just kind of focus in on that two square inches. Oh, look, there's a deer. Right. But Bob Ross is all about suggesting with kind of these kind of quick brush strokes the possibilities and the the hint of depth. Right. So he's not taking all the time to fill in all of these details. Instead, it's kind of this this broad, fast, instinctive um, creation of a landscape that 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 can when you step back, give more of an impression of depth and detail than, than is actually there. Mm-hmm. Can we, uh, I mean, can we, can we say he's an impressionist then instead of, instead of comparing him to the, the mass market television painter, no offense to Bob Ross fans, but yeah, well, <laughs> I, mean, I, I say doing... that because I've never seen an impressionist at work, but I have seen Bob Ross at work. That makes sense. And there is, a, there is this <laughs> sense that Dylan's kind of covering over some of his sloppier lines. I don't think we well, can move on from this song without without pointing to uh, the sun's not yellow, it's chicken. Yes. Yeah. Which took me ten years to get. <laughs> and see, it's funny. That's the stanza that actually made some sense to me. I mean, I thought I was a fairly straightforward, uh, you know, conscientious objector, veteran reference. 
Right, right, yeah, and and there's something Ahabian about the commander in chief saying that, like Ahab said he'd kill mm-hmm. the son if he got the opportunity. I think something like that. Yeah, the the Moby Dick Ahab. Yeah, I'm sorry, the Moby Dick Ahab. Okay, because I'm oh, okay, okay. I'm like, man, I. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I Ahab says that. I don't, I I like, I don't remember that. King reread King. First Kings. <laughs> well, let, let's move on to. Uh, it takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to try, cry. Most of the song titles don't have that much to do with the songs. Uh, uh-huh. People talk about Dylan like he can't sing. Uh, I think he's a phenomenal singer, uh, although an idiosyncratic one. And I would Certainly. point to I would take point to it takes a lot to laugh as an example of what a good singer he is because nobody else could have pulled off uh, this song the way he does it. It it is uncoverable in my opinion. And and I know this because like the the very band that backed him up did a cover of it with Stephen Stills uh mm-hmm. from Crosby Stills and Nash on vocals and it's terrible. But the uh the Dylan <laughs> version like you need that raggedness in his voice to make it work. Nathan, uh, besides the b- b- besides the vocal performance, what would you point to? And it takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. Well, uh, like you said, I mean, this one was a pleasant surprise because I really didn't think of Bob Dylan as someone who could sing. But on this one, he just sings the heck out of it. I mean, the song itself, uh, fairly straightforward, twelve bar blues number. Uh, you know, once again, you know, obviously uh, reaching for rhymes, but I mean. Just because there's not nearly as many words, it doesn't sort of stack up the images like the first two tracks do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is, like I said, you know, you're sort of, you know, riding on the train, blues tune. Uh, you know, it's a it's a catalog of images on the train, seen from the train, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, this one, once kind of like David was saying, I mean, you know, if you try to examine any couplet or any you know quatrain too closely it's not going to be that impressive but as a performance you know uh bob dylan as it turns out is really quite a good blues singer uh what what do you think david i really like this one mm-hmm. this this may actually be my favorite um on the album um the the singing is part of it but th- this this is the one um where I could believe um, where I could believe Dylan as a as a blues singer and not as a and not as a, a kind of counterculture uh, musician using blues, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, yeah, I I really like this. I and, and and I could imagine I could imagine based on the lyrics that he was covering. Um, a, a much older song 
with the the interest in the trains, um, the the train as a, as a kind of the mode of separation, um, the attention to, to you know kind of the landscape, you know it, all those kinds of things. It, it just feel it just feels classic. Um, I really like this one a lot. Um, it's it's sad and it doesn't it doesn't entice me with the promise of of allegories that it then don't pay off if that makes sense <laughs> it's also fun to sing along with in the car mhm yeah but only at the top of your voice like you couldn't i would i would not want to sing this like at home i'd be afraid the neighbors would hear but in the car when you can <laughs> when you can really let loose i also say there's there's something kind of apocalyptic about this song kind of lightly apocalyptic like there's some sort really? of calamity coming in that last verse cuz i mean it ends don't say i never warned you when your train gets lost you know yeah. winter's coming and maybe it's a maybe it's just a game of thrones Hangover that makes me <laughs> makes me hear Wintertime is coming as a threat. It's a Cassandra, Cassandra meets Game of Thrones. Then again, I do live in Minnesota, nice. so Wintertime coming is kind of a threat. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on to From a Buick Six, another song that has uh, a title that has very little to do with its lyrics. <laughs> I can tell you about an experience I had between um, listening to the album version and listening to another version. It just kind of gives you a hint. Um, I I don't know what to make of this one. There's a woman. She's a graveyard woman. She is also a junkyard angel. And she gives him bread. And she's going to put a blanket on his bed. And anyway, there's this whole... I, I don't... I, yeah, I really, I don't get this one. Um, just at all. Also a dump truck mama, whatever that means. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, no, no, no. The, the I'm first... sorry. He, he, I think he's saying I need a dump truck comma baby comma to unload my head. Uh, <laughs> I think, he's, okay, I think so it's the... a direct address. <laughs> so the... it's a, it's, it's the, it's the vocative, David. It's the vocative. <laughs> Well, see, I thought it was that soulful junkyard woman that she's also a steam shovel and a dump truck woman. Right? Who knows, right? What what in this song would have persuaded me that it was not that? <laughs> is my point. Well, I only say that because that's the one line in the song that really makes sense to me. I need a dump truck <laughs> to unload my head. I can get what that means, but like well, every, uh, everything else seems pretty nonsensical. <laughs> well, see. All right. Now, see. Here's the why. Well, then, then again, the third line of that stanza, I mean, starts with a third-person pronoun to indicate it's not vocative but nominative. She brings me everything and more. Yeah, I mean, what's the what's the antecedent to she? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe and he's talking he? to one woman and, uh, <laughs> and talking about another woman. 
Yeah. And, and we've just fallen into our own trap trying to parse a Bob Dylan line. <laughs> this song in particular, I think, is mostly about how uh, lively it is in the performance. Well, mm-hmm. he, here's the... Uh, and, and it's a fun song. It's kind of rollicky. Um, you, and you can describe the the instrumentation with better insight than I can. But I will tell you, I listened to, or I watched on YouTube, a live concert version. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the album version. All right. So third stanza. Well, she don't make me nervous. She don't talk too much. She walks like Bo Diddley. And she don't need no crutch. And so I have to think, hmm, how would Bo Diddley walk? <laughs> okay. Did you go so watch any about... videos of Bo Diddley performing? Uh, I, I didn't, but I kind of had some kind of an image there, right? So then I go, when I'm watching the live concert version, he says, she don't make me nervous. She don't talk too much. She walks like Rambo and she don't need no crutch. <laughs> At which point I just threw up my arms and said, Bob Dylan, you just don't care, do you? <laughs> You just don't care. One guy who doesn't one guy who doesn't take Bob Dylan lyrics too seriously is Bob Dylan. That is true. He is perfectly happy to change the lyrics. Because I spent all this time trying to figure out what walking like Bo Diddley means, and then now he's made it walking like Rambo. Well, either and... way, she's walking very masculinely, right? Yeah, but in a completely different way. Now she's a threat. <laughs> at any point, at any point, she might snap, and you know. Yeah, at, at that point, the four ten loaded with lead becomes something very different. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that people. Maybe they do, but I don't, I don't know that people uh, take Dylan seriously enough as a humorist. You know, uh, to to speak paradoxically, mm-hmm. I, I I think I think he is often hysterically funny. And I, I think if you, if you, again, if you try to go with that voice of a generation thing, you're going to have a t- hard time hearing it. And in particular, Dylan in the last 20 years has been just hysterical. Mm-hmm. His album Love and Theft is, uh, is, is one of the funniest records ever made. Like, mm-hmm. it, it is funnier than any Weird Al Yankovic record. And I like Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a different kind of funny, though. It's not, it's not quite the same you know this is a parody it's 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 like i don't know it, it I, maybe it's because i knew bob dylan by reputation for years and years and years and years and years before i listened but i keep feeling like i'm being lured in by this i am the voice of a generation and then he does stuff like this and i'm like what <laughs> the voice of a generation is messing with me that's right yeah yeah you've you've got to you've got to not treat him that way he yeah. doesn't like it <laughs> he doesn't like when you do that Dave alright uh, let's move on to a song that lots of people have lots of theories about Ballad of a Thin Man you walk into the room with your pencil in your hand see somebody naked in you you say who is that man you try so hard but you don't understand 
just what you will say when you get home Because something is happening here but you don't know what it is Do you, Mr. Jones? Oh gosh, I didn't know there were theories to this one. So many uh, Okay, well, uh, let me talk a little bit just about the sound of it then. Uh, you know, it, it's got the the signature sound of this one, I think, is that weird keyboard sound. I, I, I It sounds something between a piano and a harpsichord, I think. Uh, reminds me more than anything of uh, an incredible string band track. Um, I mean, uh, the lyrics to this thing, I mean are a lot of, you know, dialogue uh, in sort of ballad form. And the dialogue all points to unintelligibility. So, I mean, it's people saying things that other people don't understand. It is, you know, figures that, you know, you don't expect to be talking uh, and who are supposed to be a spectacle, treating the viewer as the spectacle. Uh, It's this mysterious figure, Mr. Jones, who I imagine is the uh, root of all theories. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is, it has more of a, a narrative feel than some of the earlier tracks on the album. Uh, but you know, because I am not a Dylan person and frankly, because I was, uh, meeting with students about paper drafts instead of looking at Bob Dylan fan pages, I'm not a hundred percent what, uh, not a hundred percent sure, pardon me, what all of the possible theories are. So Michael, I'm going to have to have you, uh, educate me here. I mean, who is the mysterious Mr. Jones? Well, I believe a reporter from England has actually come out and said that he's Mr. Jones. But okay. the, the, the theory I'm talking about is that this song is about repressed homosexuality. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go through the lyrics here and find some uh, f- find some stuff that might suggest that. And to keep well, yeah. Pop- now, now that now that I look at it through that lens, uh, you could read it that way. <laughs> there are there are a lot of phallic images in in this, okay. in this song. You walk into the room with your pencil in your hand. You see somebody naked, and you say, <laughs> "Who is that man?" I mean, it's it's not even really that that subtle. You raise up your head and you ask, "Is this where it is?" Like he's walking into some sort of orgy. Um, the, the, the geek, which is, you know, a geek is a person who swallows things. He's like a a sideshow freak who swallows Uh things. This, uh, this geek asks, uh, ask Mr. Jones how it feels to be such a freak. And you say impossible as he hands you a bone. Uh, you have many contacts (laughs) among the lumberjacks. Well, son of a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then verse five is really where it really where it, it ramps up. The sword swallower comes up to you and he kneels. He crosses himself and he clicks his high heels. And without further notice, he asks you how it feels. And he says, here's your throat back. Thanks for the loan. And then, the one, of course, the one-eyed midget. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how that fits in with the kind of general, like, uh, guy who doesn't get the counterculture, uh, Mr. Jones reading of the song. But there uh-huh. is, th- there's too much of that for me to think it's accidental. I gotcha. I gotcha. I, I have to say somebody who I think does have it wrong is John Lennon. In the Beatles song, Your Blues, uh, John Lennon says that he feels so suicidal, just like Dylan's Mr. Jones. I don't think Mr. Jones is suicidal. Huh, okay. 
Yeah, I, 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 I now, now that I look over it through that lens, Michael, I mean, I, I think I was just lulled into the album full of random images trap. <laughs> yeah, th- this one, I mean, I, yeah, now that, uh, now that you've uh, allegorized one part, the rest of it becomes allegory. Yeah, it, it, once you once you hear that reading, and I didn't invent that, but once you once you hear that reading, it is very difficult to read the song any other way. Can yes, we, indeed. Can we all agree that the best part, musically speaking, is the bridge when he says "tax deductible charity organizations"? <laughs> that's just a that's just a wonderful. He doesn't usually have bridges, so it's it's it uh, it, it's really uh, I think effective. Hmm. Well, and then also, I mean, I, like I said at the outset, I mean, you know, the keyboard work on this one is so memorable. Creepy organ, again played by Al mm-hmm. Cooper. Yeah. Well, the creepy organ background with the, you know, just hammering piano sound. Which is Dylan himself, I think. Okay. Because he plays, he mm-hmm. plays piano on several of the tracks on this record. All right, all He's right. not much of a piano player. But, you know, he mm-hmm. makes it work. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like his voice. It's It's got its limitations, but he knows how to use it, you know? <laughs> right, right. David, anything to add about Ballad of a Thin Man? I think you have all missed <laughs> this for far more than I could have. Uh, I, gotta, I, gotta, I also got to point to the lyric, you've been with the professors and they all liked your looks. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty mean. Um, pretty mean line. The 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 bit with the sword swallower and you know the the midget the geek you know all of this kind of carnival imagery though um, it keeps and along with that uh, incredibly ominous chorus I, I I just find that very very brooding and ominous mm-hmm. um, like. If it, if it wasn't already, it needs to it needs to end up being the soundtrack for some kind of like spooky high end cable show about you know a carnival. You nice, because <laughs> because that's what it feels like. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk about a song. I don't know that we're going to have that much to say about uh, Queen Jane, approximately. <laughs> back all your invitations and your father to your sister he explains that you're tired of yourself and all of your creations won't you come see me David, can you explain Queen Jane approximately to me? Wheel? Um, no. <laughs> um, so there's this person, Queen Jane, who won't come to see him. And he's always asking about that. Uh, 
when your mother sends back all your invitations and your father to your sister, he explains that you're tired of yourself and all your creations. Won't you come to see me, Queen Jane? Yeah, I I have no idea what to do with this man. <laughs> is, is, is this one about which there are also theories? Oh, I, I, marijuana. I, did, I, did, I mean, I think I think some people say that that Queen Jane is Mary Jane, but I I don't see like that that reading doesn't make any sense given the actual lyrics to the song. Right. I mean, other than like the vague sense that the one writing it is high. I think you've but... also you've also got a similar vibe to like a Rolling Stone. This is a this is a woman. Who yeah, was once yeah. some status and no longer has it. Mm-hmm. I, and this is another one of those cases. I, I actually kind of like poked around and found somewhere on the interwebs that said that Bob Dylan in an interview said that Queen Jane was not actually a woman. Yep. At which point I just threw my hands up and and I surrendered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. This is this is my I mean, least favorite song on Highway 61, I think. Yeah. But it's mostly like uh, Bloom Bloomfield's out of tune. Hmm. The the guitar the guitar's out of tune, or or it's probably the piano that's out of tune. But it it sounds like the guitar's out of tune because Dylan's following the piano. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's something discordant about it. Oof. <laughs> I, I I imagine you would find that far more musically off-putting than me, given that you could put a name to the thing that's wrong. Whereas for me, it's just like, this is odd and jangly and what? It's, it's just off enough to be kind of irritating. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure somebody will write in and tell us that we're completely misunderstanding Queen Jane approximately. It's a great title. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a great title. It's, it's an actually an allegory for Vietnam, man. Wow, the whole the whole record, right? <laughs> well, there's the flower ladies, right? You know, and then I don't know the the clowns that die in battle. I guess. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, from uh, from no interpretation to a surplus of interpretation, the title track, Highway sixty one revisited. I think the funniest song on this record. Hmm. Uh, Nathan, you're the theologian, so I figure you're going to start with uh, God telling Abraham, kill me a son. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, actually, I'm going to start with that goofy whistle right at the beginning of the track. I'm like, what the heck is this? Um, Once again, you know, David's uh, comments earlier that, you know, if you're looking for the, you know, prophetic voice of a generation going to pronounce doom on the corruptions of the establishment and, you know, you're going to lead off with, woo! (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm looking at the story here nathan and it says that al cooper would bring in that whistle to police Uh, the sessions and if someone started doing drugs he would blow on that whistle which sounds like a police (laughs) siren (laughs) (laughs) that's wonderful that's wonderful so that drugs are involved whistle can you imagine that song without that whistle? <laughs> like it just makes it. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, this is another song that you know. Once again, uh, we've got to find a whole lot of words that rhyme with one because every stanza's got to end with Highway 61. Uh, 
you know, we do have these uh, images, uh, one from, you know, Genesis 22, one from, you know, a sort of encounter between law enforcement and a vagrant, uh, you know, one with Louis the King, uh, one with, you know, a very confused family, one with a, you know, roving gambler. Uh, again, you know, if you try to sit on any of these stanzas, uh, you're not going to come up with much, but one of the impressions that does come across, if you listen to the whole track and think of it as a whole track, uh, is that, you know, the highway 61 is kind of a stand in for some place where stuff happens. Uh, it's not any place <laughs> in particular. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, it, you don't have to have any place in particular for this to happen. It could just be a road going from anywhere to anywhere else. All of these things are happening. None of it makes sense. Uh, and there is no Bastille to storm. It's all just happening on Highway 61. So, Which is a, uh, real, which is a real highway and an important one for Dylan because it runs uh, from Duluth, Minnesota, where he's from, all the way down to New Orleans. So okay. it is the all route, right. figuratively, that the blues would have taken in reaching a teenage Dylan. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I know well, what I, else? Lord knows what that has to do with Mac the Finger and Louis the King. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to explain and say that that explains everything, but right, right. And then you know, the fifth daughter on the twelfth night. I'm thinking, okay, Shakespeare, uh, you know, told the first father that things weren't right. My complexion, she said, is much too white. And I'm like, okay, you're, you're just whatever rhymes you're saying. I... Yeah. Uh, the, the the best part of the whole song though is. Uh... A- 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 Abe doesn't want to kill Isaac, and God says, "You can do what you want, Abe, but next time you see me coming, you better run." And then there's an empty bar, uh, and Abe says, "Where well, you want this killing done?" <laughs> He's thinking it out. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, so not fear and trembling. No, well, and in fact, the um, the Penguin edition of Fear and Trembling, the introduction, opens with that verse. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. That's with uh, and, and I think it's Alistair Haney talks about the differences in Kierkegaard's outlook and Dylan's. <laughs> nice, David. Anything you want to say about Highway sixty one? I mean, it's a good road trip song. If you know you like your road trip songs trippy and inexplicable, it is inexplicable. Well, but no, I, I will say, Michael, when I when I listened to this and read it, I'm thinking, oh, there's going to be reference here that I am completely unaware of. I'm not going to have time to prep and find out what these references are, and Dylan people are going to hate me for it. But I, I mean, I'm sure they will. From what I'm hearing from you, I, I, I had little to fear from this track. <laughs> I. I... I have a hard time believing this song is about anything in particular. I think it's I okay, think, it, all right, I all think right. it's just silly fun. <laughs> I'm sure we could twist it into meaning something. I'm sure we could take that religious allegory at the beginning and apply it over the whole song, but uh I'm not really interested in doing that, are you? No, not especially. <laughs> well let's uh, my favorite song is number eight, uh just like Tom Thumbs Blue. <laughs>
has a cohesive narrative i think it's it's mm-hmm. fairly clear what he's talking about um but uh david what is that <laughs> well um so far as i can tell uh the just like tom thumbs blues is about going down to mexico and drinking a lot and um hanging out with some ladies of negotiable virtue and possibly acquiring unspeakable diseases. Well, the doctor can't tell him uh, what he's got anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And then going back home, a hollow shell of your former self. That, that so far as I can tell is, uh, what this song is about. Um, am am I on the right track? I, I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's in Juarez, yeah. right? He's in, he, he, he's, yeah. he's in, he's in the tropics and, and things are going poorly. And by the end of the song, <laughs> he feels so beaten that he heads back to New York city. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the manners of speaking about, uh, the, the women are important in this. Um, first reference in the first stanza, they are hungry women and they will really make a mess out of you. But then he starts using this, uh, this other manner of speaking. St. Annie mm-hmm. is, is the way he refers to him. Another, um, third stanza has a sweet Melinda and peasants call her the goddess of gloom. So, you know, th- there's, there's this balance between, sacred language and uh disaster language that's interesting mm-hmm. um and i keep wanting to make more out of it than maybe is there i've also got angel uh, right yeah the authorities is, is have angel, picked up angel from the coast is angel is angel a woman or a man could go either way because it it, the, the, it doesn't use a it uses a um it doesn't use a personal pronoun it says who and not he or she right 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 well, I mean, I, I I would I would think that Angel was another another woman in the song, given especially given the the kind of the sacral language to to name this character. But then it says, "Arrived from the coast, who looked so fine at first, but left looking just like a ghost," and that's the character arc of the eye in the song, which is you arrive and things are pretty okay, but then you get destroyed while you're here, and then you leave. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's the only thing that made me wonder whether or not it was, uh, whether, whether Angel was, uh, one of these hungry women or one of the men upon, upon, upon which the hungry women prey. We gotta, I mean, you, you've, you've kind of brought it up, but there's lots and lots of religious imagery here, starting with the, the first mm-hmm. couplet, cause it's Easter time. When all right. this is happening, and then by the end of the last verse, he's 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 he started drinking Burgundy, you know, mm-hmm. which which could be communion wine, I suppose, and then then he's he's moved on to the harder stuff, and that's when he decides he has to leave. <laughs> so there's, mm-hmm. you know, he's in a Catholic country, 
you've got ghosts, you've got angels, you've got saints, and you've got this this red wine that that fails to satisfy him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a weird it's kind of a weird magical space that that he gets into in the song. Um which you know the uh, all the english professor in me wants to talk about like midsummer night's dream and the carnivalesque in the woodlands and you know all that kind of stuff but i i i think that might be pushing it too far <laughs> i don't know that you could push Dylan too far <laughs> <laughs> i do i do a uh, question whether uh whether Juarez really has a rue morgue avenue that seems improbable yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poe reference. Um, that 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 seems to be the thing to me is wasn't wasn't he an was it wasn't he an English major or something like that for like a hot minute he he dropped out of college lickety split. <laughs> I sat in on right. a, a history of science lecture at the University mm-hmm. of Minnesota once in a in a class and uh, the the professor they were talking about Einstein like. Einstein failing, and the, the the professor before class started play uh, played uh, played Love Minus Zero over No Limit, um, uh, where he says there's no success like failure, and failure's no success at all. And he he began class by talking for ten minutes about how much he enjoyed imagining Bob sitting in his classes for the three or four weeks he was enrolled at the University of Minnesota before he split for New York City. And so I don't mm-hmm. even know if he was there long enough to major in something, but he's certainly well read. I mean. Well, that's the thing is that it, it, he's he's constantly making allusions to to history or to story, um, but it's but it's 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 pretty much always the kind that I think peop, the the ordinary person would get. So yeah. when he drops Rue Morgue Avenue, I think most decently well-read people are gonna see Poe. Right. Sure. You know, and and you you needn't have have read. You know the Hunchback of Notre Dame in order to get that reference in another song. You know, so it's that it's it's that kind of you know, you you need to be Edie Hirsch style culturally literate, and that's <laughs> but almost that almost gets in it. the way, right? Because because as we discussed in Tombstone Blues, these all all of these references seem to be just for the point of making the reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he's not actually doing anything with them. They're they're and Desolation Row, which is the last song, which we may as well go ahead and talk to, is is the the ultimate example of this. I mean, they're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors The circus is in town Here comes the blind commissioner They've got him in a trance One hand is tied to the tightrope walker The other is in his pants And the riot squad they need somewhere to go As Lady and I look out tonight From Desolation Row Desolation Row is almost nothing but 
uh, character snapshots. Mason, mm-hmm. can you can you mm-hmm. make any sort of sense of this record or this song? Uh, yeah, it pretty much is a record in its own right. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you do have these characters, you know, all of whom are composed of references to other characters, right? So, I mean, yeah. uh, Cinderella is a composite of Bette Davis and Romeo, and you know the. Uh, Let's see here, you know, Ophelia, you know, gets, oh, let's see here. And again, all, all these verses kind of run together on me. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, let, let me go down to another one. I mean, Einstein is disguised as Robin Hood, uh, but he's playing electric violin. Which he did. And... <laughs> I mean, Einstein's hobby was playing the violin. Electric violin? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and did he do so while disguised as Robin Hood and sniffing drain pipes? <laughs> sniffing drain pipes is really excellent. <laughs> it really is. Uh, and th- and then there's the mysterious, you know, Doctor Filth who keeps his world inside a leather cup. And I'm like, ah. Uh, <laughs> Keep I moving. Like, I, like, yeah. I like the Phantom of the Opera who is spoon feeding Casanova whilst dressed as a priest. Yeah. So in all of these, you know, um, you do get these, once again, I mean, these sort of temptations to allegorize that he immediately overturns. Uh, You know, you think you're going to have some sort of, um, I don't know, moral significance to it. And then, you know, the images stack up about two more layers deep and make it impossible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just happens over and over and over and over again. Uh, Desolation Row, I mean, obviously, you know... uh, an echo of, you know, Skid Row, you know, sort of the, you know, the bad side of town. Uh, but as far as, you know, these characters, you know, inhabiting a common narrative, uh, they don't so much as they are just sort of scenery themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they are all just kind of sights that you would see on this desolation row. So uh, once again, Michael, I, I'm, I'm afraid uh, Dylan has outflanked me i don't know what the heck to do with this <laughs> oh yeah i i have almost nothing to say about desolation row. <laughs> yeah do you I mean, david I, I mean other other than to pick out you know particular lines and pairs of lines that are amusing yeah. bits well he's at least got ezra pound and t.s Eliot in uh-huh. the same uh in the same stanza as a reference to mermaids. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's almost coherent. I almost <laughs> got that. And then, and then, and then the image went away again. Um, it's, it, it's, it's like looking up at the clouds and saying, wow, it looks like a giraffe. And then no, not anymore. <laughs> um, the, the, the making skid row or whatever it is into desolation row. I keep wanting it to be like abomination of desolation row. Um, oh, okay, but, but, but that, I don't know that that works. Um, I, I like your idea of it, of desolation row, just kind of being this place of destruction. And these are just characters who are there. So it's not so much a story as it is. This is just the, this is the character of this place, right? These right. are the it's, it's, it's a, it's a panoramic view rather than a chronological view. These are the people in this neighborhood. 
Um, in that way, it reminds me a little They're bit. They're the uh, people that you meet when you're strung out on the street. <laughs> yes. Um, it reminds me a bit of uh, when Aeneas visits the underworld um, mm -hmm. in the Aeneid. And one of the first things he does when he gets to the gate is he sees this entire series of monsters and allegorized vices and sinners in punishment. And, um, and they're all just kind of there, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a little bit like that. But again, you know, I don't know that I'm explaining Bob Dylan so much as I am explaining my reaction to Bob Dylan. <laughs> right. Huh. What a ridiculous song. <laughs> so the, the, the final question here is, and, and you don't have to just base this on the strength of Highway 61 Revisited if you know Dylan's other uh -huh. material. Do you think the Nobel Prize Committee was uh, was right to give him the give him the the Nobel this year? Oh, who has to answer that first? You. you oh hell. Oh. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, I. I <laughs> here's my problem michael is that i am Fallen such a sword. bad reader of modern literature that i mean you know i i know that uh danny anderson is is listening to this episode right now saying no philip roth should have won and i like danny anderson so i'm like yeah why not well i think they're and giving then, the you know, i think they're giving the grammy to philly philip roth next year <laughs> <laughs> i i hope that happens michael i really so they just do. decided I, to switch is that is that the deal <laughs> so i mean as, as far as literary prizes go you know i mean i think that the prize committee certainly made a statement here that the publishing industry as we think of it isn't going to be the only place where nobel prizes are going to head uh and i think at the very least that's an interesting statement uh, as far as the merit of it, I, like I said, I have to admit that I am so unaccustomed to ranking modern literature uh, simply because I've, I've read so little of it that, uh, you know, this strikes me as an odd choice, but I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can say it's a good or a bad choice. Uh, and I realize that's an utter cop out, but I mean, um, it's what I've got. David, what have you got? <laughs> Oh, um, I mean, at the, at the we we we've we've already said it that Bob Dylan, at least in this album, and this is the only one I know, and therefore I can I can fence in everything that I say with with my ignorance as an armor. Um, <laughs> I that you know th this is this is more like suggestions of poetry than it is it you know it's you know it's impressionistic so is impressionistic poetry good poetry um i don't get paid enough to make that call uh i feel my, my i mean my gut is that it was more his 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 cultural stature that led to this than necessarily um, simple literary merit. Um, I mean, it, it also makes sense that uh, if if you remember that the Nobel prizes are ultimately given um, with uh, with with the notion of 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 actions, works, people that have that have led towards peace, 
Um, that makes some sense of Bob Dylan getting it because of that because of that counterculture and uh, anti-war association. Um, so so that's figuring in there. I, I I just wondered how. I mean, is is there is there a statute of limitations on Nobel prizes? I no, mean, and it me- goes it goes for the entire. It goes for the entire career. It, okay. They they don't award them to dead people. But okay. other than that, like they could presumably still give one to Philip Roth, even though he hasn't written a book in ten years and isn't going to write another one. I thought I thought Philip Roth did die. Nope, Philip Roth's still alive. Updike died. Oh, I'll be Updike died. Son of a gun. All right. Again, again, terrible reader of modern literature. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think Danny is whistling past the graveyard if he thinks Roth is going to win. Yeah, uh, just I, like the 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 Nobel Committee has a pretty clear bias against American authors. The Dylan is the first quote unquote American author to win since Toni Morrison in nineteen ninety three. Okay, so so like I don't know. And and even then, it feels less like they chose an American author than it is like they chose an American icon. Yeah, and an, and an icon of an America that they prefer. I I, I was I I thought maybe Leonard is that Co- fair? I thought maybe Leonard Cohen would eventually get this. I think Leonard Cohen is probably a better was probably a better lyricist than Dylan most of the time. Although I prefer <laughs> Dylan's music to Cohen's. Mm-hmm. Oh, and see, I like Leonard Cohen. <laughs> you, you, yeah, well, I like him too. And I, I, I think mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of lyrics that stand as poetry, I think his beat Dylan's hands down. But I, I like the sound of Dylan's records better. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, but, yeah, because I'm your man is some some really really good lyrics writing, but it hasn't aged well. No, and and that's true of most most Cohen records. And and Cohen right. has the advantage of also having been a poet before he was a songwriter. Right. I mean, right. Dylan has a book called Tarantula that I think is like a um, experimental novel that basically nobody reads. I, <laughs> I've certainly never read it. So, so, I, I, I don't know. I, I am I'm disappointed that instead of giving the Nobel to someone who could have benefited from it, somebody who maybe wasn't super famous. I mm-hmm. mean, the people who were who were. Uh, rumored for it or people who people know. I mean, Murakami is perpetually mm-hmm. the person who's supposed to be about mm-hmm. to get it, but I feel like I feel like it'd be better to give it to somebody who, um, who who maybe doesn't have the sort of instant name recognition that Dylan has. I I, I would be opposed to giving it to someone who is uh, who, who mostly works in another field anyway i mean I, right. i'm not saying that lyrics can't be poetry but i do think that at this point in history they're two very different things right yeah that's would fair it, enough would it be um too edgy to compare this to uh the nobel prize uh, peace prize being given to uh President Obama. I think the comparison right there, after he first ju- right after he first got elected. I think the comparison there is probably to Harold Pinter winning the the Lit Nobel in oh okay. was it two thousand seven when mm-hmm. maybe it was before that Harold Pinter was widely um, rumored to have won because of his very anti George W Bush public remarks. I I don't like Pinter very much. I I I think that's not an entirely charitable reading of him though. I mean, he he's clearly an important playwright. I, I you know, he's just not for mm-hmm. me. 
Obama winning was he very clearly won because he was not George W. Bush. And and I, I wonder I wonder <laughs> if the people who gave it to him are embarrassed now that he has killed so many people with drones, you know, now that he's blown up a right. few Afghan weddings. You, right. you wonder if they could take back the Nobel Peace Prize. But if you look at the Peace Prize, it goes to people who I'm not sure should have won it all the time. Um, yeah. Yasser Arafat won it. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, um, who, who, who's the other person? Oh, Al Gore won it for making that kind of popularizing climate change movie, An Inconvenient Truth, which this isn't a statement mm-hmm. about climate change. But I'm not sure that he deserved the Nobel Peace Prize for that. He deserved to be put in the same category as Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Malala. Yeah, right. You know, so so I think I think in general, the the Peace Prize is going to be more political than the the mm-hmm. Literature Prize, which I, I think they do a pretty good job, other than their ignoring of America and whatever. That's fine. There's plenty of American yeah. prizes. Um, I think they do a pretty good job in getting a range of people. The woman who won last year, uh, we didn't do an episode about it, but she did oral histories of Chernobyl and the uh, Soviet Afghan war. And they're really wonderful. Before that, you had a a kind of experimental French novelist, um, uh, Modiano, um, who, Mm -hmm. who was nothing like her before that you had Alice Monroe, who we did do an episode on. So I I think Mm -hmm. they, they generally do a pretty good job of picking people from a variety of different genres and Mm -hmm. styles. And maybe that's what they're doing here with Dylan. I mean, I mean, maybe if we look at it in the context of the last 20 years of Nobel prize winners, it will seem less aggravating because it's not, Mm -hmm. as far as we know, it's not like they're saying, well, we're never going to give it to another uh, literary writer ever again, but I uh, I don't know. (laughs) Doesn't Dylan have enough? Yeah. The comparison that it seemed, the reason why I brought up that comparison is because it seems as if sometimes the committee um, wants to give the prize to a moment. And they can't give the prize to a moment, so they give the prize to a person who represents the moment. That that definitely makes sense with the Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure the Dylan fans will have something to say to us. Uh, as, as, I, as I said when this happened, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote Dylan guy at every conference you go to is going to be extra aggravating now. <laughs> and uh, anybody who's ever been to a humanities conference knows exactly what I'm talking about when I say the Dylan guy. I should say I was at the John Updike conference uh, when Dylan won, and people were a little upset because, you know, Updike never won a Nobel Prize. Well, Updike's son, David, uh, did, a, did a presentation, as, as he, he often does at these, at, at these conferences, and uh, he said, some of you have been wondering what my father would have thought about Dylan, and he brought out this uh, concert review that Updike wrote about... Um, about a Joan Baez concert in Massachusetts, and Updike was apparently like he really had it for Joan Baez. He had just a, a, an enormous crush on her, and he badmouthed Dylan. And his son suggested that it was probably just because it was very clear that Baez had a crush on Dylan. So I thought I thought that was funny. Aww. I uh, I have not gotten to the point where I get Joan Baez. Her her voice is too much for me, I'm afraid. Okay, so if you do have a problem with anything we've said, if we've left something out, as I'm sure we have, this this record um, 
bears many interpretations and no interpretations, please send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Visit our website at christianhumanist.org. David, what's, uh, what's on tap for next week? Well, I thought I'd like to uh, follow up on, uh, I, I guess, my, my unsatisfied instincts from digging through the, the, the lyrics of Bob Dylan um, and, and instead go to some poetry where that, uh, I think, can pay off some more. Uh, we're going to look at the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Sounds good. Or at yep. least at least we'll be able to say something meaningful about that, I hope. <laughs> the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>